Welcome to episode 5 of History Stories for My Son, the podcast where we remember that history is a story that should be shared with every generation. As always, I'll ask that if you like this podcast and like it to continue, please take a minute to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. This week, I will tell you the story of the Wright brothers, first in flight. Before we get into their story, let's take a step back from our modern perspective, where we've become so accustomed to wonders that we take them for granted, and put ourselves in the mindset of somebody living 116 years ago, 1903. From the dawn of civilization until 1903, no human being had ever flown, except for the still recent innovation of hot air balloons and dirigibles. People accustomed as they are to think the future will look like the past assume that this was a law of nature. Indeed, the prevailing scientific consensus in 1903 was that it was impossible to build a heavier-than-air flying machine big enough to carry a human being. The New York Times, then as now, embodied respectable opinion. And on October 9th, 1903, the Grey Lady authoritatively declared, Hence, if it requires, say, a thousand years to fit for easy flight a bird which started with rudimentary wings, or 10,000 years for one which started with no wings at all, and have to sprout them ab initio, it might be assumed that a flying machine which will really fly might be evolved by the combined and continuous efforts of mathematicians and mechanicians in from 1 million to 10 million years, provided, of course, we can meanwhile eliminate such little drawbacks and embarrassments as the existing relation between weight and strength in inorganic materials. The Wright Flyer flew December 17, 1903, a little over two months after that smug little pronouncement I just read. This is the story of the men who made that happen. and Orville Wright were born in 1867 and 1871, respectively. Two of seven children, their father was a bishop in the Church of the United Brethren of Christ. Their father's position meant they moved frequently, 12 times, in fact, during their childhood before finally settling in Dayton, Ohio. There's nothing particular in their childhood that would have made you guess that they would become two of the most famous inventors in human history. Orville was a troublemaker who was once expelled from school. Wilbur, the elder brother, was more studious and had hoped to go to Yale, but a hockey injury and the need to care for his mother, who was dying of tuberculosis, prevented him from going to college. There was one foreshadow, perhaps, of who they'd become. In 1978, when the family lived in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Wilbur was 11, Orville 7, 
Their father brought home a toy helicopter made of paper, bamboo, and cork with a rubber band to spin the rotor. And it was based on a design by a famous French inventor by the name of Alphonse Pinouad. It was about a foot long. Now, this was, of course, only a toy. Functional helicopters capable of carrying a man weren't developed until the 1920s, a couple decades after the Wrights invented the airplane. But the Wrights were intrigued. They played with it till it broke, and then tellingly built their own. They would later say that this experience sparked their interest in flying. Their adult lives started out without much success, but with some further indications of their inventiveness. Neither graduated from high school, but in 1889 they designed and built their own printing press and went into the printing business. The two briefly published a newspaper, which quickly failed, and after the paper folded, they... uh, eventually closed down the business. But in 1892, they made a decision that would be momentous, though they couldn't have known it at the time. They decided to capitalize on their mechanical skills by opening their own bicycle repair and sale shop. At the time, there was a national bicycle craze going on after the then-recent invention of the safety bicycle. Now, the safety bicycle is just what we think of the bicycle today, uh, where the front and the back tires are the same size. It replaced the older version you might have seen in old-timey pictures where there's a huge oversized front tire, which uh, were much more dangerous because the rider was higher off the ground. The key innovation was that it achieved speed amplification through a chain-driven gear train, rather than through the size of the front tire. Uh, The only downside was that it was more mechanically complicated, which created an opportunity for mechanically inclined entrepreneurs like the Reds. Their business was successful, and they used the money made in their shop, as well as the mechanical skills that they honed designing and building bicycles, to fuel their interest in flight. In the 1890s, they saw newspaper articles about the German glider experiments of Otto Lilienthal and became convinced that that a powered flying machine, based on the same basic principles of a pilot providing balance to an aircraft, much like a bicycle rider, which of course they were very familiar with, was possible. Lilienthal's subsequent death in a hang gliding crash far from deterring the rights, uh, actually strengthened their resolve to figure it out. They would have also been aware of the successful flight by Smithsonian Secretary Samuel Langley of an unmanned steam-powered model aircraft in 1896, and they wrote a letter to the Smithsonian requesting all the information then available on aeronautics. In the death of Lilienthal, combined with the successful flight of model aircraft convinced the Wrights that the key innovation was how to control the aircraft once it was in the air. It was possible they were sure to build a flying machine. In fact, people had built toy-scale flying machines before. Uh, But controlling it in the air with a man in it, that was the difficult part. 
without an ability to control it, it was just a useless curiosity or a death trap unless the pilots could uh, steer it once you got it off the ground. They also realized that while Lilenthal's technique of shifting weights, like a bicycle rider, was part of the solution, it wasn't the entire solution. They watched birds closely and observed how the tips of birds' wings would twist in the air, and they puzzled over how they could do that with a mechanical wing. One night, Wilbur was idly twisting a long inner tube box at the bicycle shop, and he happened upon one of those great eureka moments that have changed history. He realized it was possible to rig up a system to allow the pilot to warp the shape of the wing, thus steering through the air like a bird. Modern airplanes use ailerons, which are hinged surfaces attached to the main wing, to achieve the same effect with less stress on the main body of the wing, but that innovation was still some years off. The Wright's approach, relying on balance and wing warping, was really the key innovation and the reason the Wright succeeded when so many others failed. Other would-be airmen of the time thought of airplanes as flying ships and tried to make them inherently stable, level in the air, and then move them left and right with a rudder as though they were a ship on the surface of the ocean. Uh, But it it proved impossible to turn uh, the air into the equivalent of a level surface. Anytime you tried to serve uh, to turn, the plane would inevitably tilt, bank. And so the Wrights abandoned the inherent stability concept uh, in favor of one that embraced the fact that airplanes twisted and banked in the air. Um, and instead of trying to prevent that, tried to control it um, by allowing, again, to alter the surfaces of the wing uh, in a way that controlled how it turned, the angle of turn, and allowed the pilot to correct when it turned the way that uh, they didn't want it to turn. Now, starting in 1900, the boys went to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, to conduct experiments with their glider designs. They uh, picked the location because it has steady winds and soft, sandy beaches, which is good for cushioning the inevitable crashes. And so each year for the next several years, they went out there to test their glider designs. And then uh, after uh, some experiments, uh, they would go back home and make improvements based on what they'd learned in the field tests. After the 1901 experiments, they were feeling somewhat discouraged. Their glider hadn't flown as well as they'd hoped. It had much less lift than it should have had, according to their mathematical calculations, which were based on the predictions of earlier flight pioneers. So they decided to build their own wind tunnel and figure out for themselves uh, exactly how much lift various wing designs would get them. Uh, And so using a model bicycle uh, pedaled vigorously to generate wind, uh, they were able to create their own little wind tunnel, basically just an enclosed space with uh, lots of wind to allow them to test a variety of wing shapes and observe uh, how much uh, lift, drag, uh, the various shapes got them. 
and they made their own calculations, which uh, turned out to be much closer to accurate than what was assumed previously. And one key discovery they made was that a longer, narrower wing would provide more lift than shorter, fatter wings. And so their design incorporated that longer wing, which again distinguished them from a lot of the other early efforts, which often had fat, squat wings, which turns out doesn't work as well. So with that information, they designed their new, improved 1902 glider, went back to Kitty Hawk, and confirmed that the new glider flew much better and longer than the old one. They also added a rotating rear rudder, not to steer the aircraft. Remember, we talked about how some early aircraft designers uh, thought to steer an aircraft like a ship left and right. That wasn't the purpose of the rudder as the Wrights used it, but instead to help counter the effect when the craft started to roll too much as a result of wing warping. The rudder would help to ride it uh, by providing a um, counter-control surface to, to help roll it back in the right direction. The rudder they designed could be rotated uh, in both directions so as to push against the angle of rotation. And this combined with uh, wing warping uh, and what they called an elevator, which is a hinged set of what looks like smaller wings that they had just ahead of the pilot, could be rotated up and down to control elevation. Um, that allowed them the, to control the aircraft in all three dimensions. So between the elevator rotating up and down to allow them to go up and down, the wings to allow them to shift left and right combined with the rudder to control the rotation, created the first aircraft where you could really uh, control the aircraft in all three dimensions, which is, of course, what you need when you're flying through the air, which is a three-dimensional space. And so by 1902, they had created the first truly steerable glider. The only thing left to do was to add power. And this was easier said than done. Engines were heavy at the time, too heavy for an airplane. The Wrights rode a number of engine manufacturers, but none of them could make one light enough for their needs. Fortunately, their bike shop mechanic, uh, a man by the name of Charlie Taylor, was handy with engines, and together with the Wrights, they designed and built an engine uh, from scratch in just six weeks. Critically, they cast the engine block from aluminum, which was a very rare practice at the time, but was the only way to get the engine light enough to put on an aircraft. They strapped this engine onto their latest improved glider, added wooden propellers that they designed and hand-carved themselves, and voila, they had the first real airplane. The engine transferred power to the propeller with drive chains, which were similar to those of the bicycles that the Wrights were very familiar with. And on December 14th, 1903, on the 121st anniversary of the first hot air balloon flight, Wilbur won a coin toss and made the first attempt to fly the machine. He strapped himself in, lying flat across the lower wing of the biplane, and turned on the engine. The plane crashed after three seconds, due to what... Wilbur admitted was pilot air. Not a propitious beginning. But following repairs, on December 17th, 
They tried again. For the first time ever, human beings flew an airplane. Their first flight covered just 120 feet. But then as they grew confidence, the distance grew too. 175 feet. 200 feet. I'll turn to Orville's account for the final flight. Wilbur started the fourth and last flight at just about 12 o'clock. The first few hundred feet were up and down as before, but by the time 300 feet had been covered, the machine was under much better control. The course for the next four or 500 feet had but little undulation. However, when out about 800 feet, the machine began pitching again, and in one of its darts downward struck the ground. The distance over the ground was measured to be 852 feet. The time of the flight was 59 seconds. The frame supporting the front rudder was badly broken, but the main part of the machine was not injured at all. We estimated that the machine could be put in condition for flight again in about a day or two. And it was really that last flight that demonstrated, for the first time ever, controlled, sustained human flight. Uh, They got it up, and they didn't just hop up and down, uh, as a lot of earlier attempts had done. They actually kept it in the air, sustained flight uh, for a a long enough period of time to determine that the aircraft was capable of staying in the air on its own. And they even demonstrated some ability to control the machine in flight. What was the world's reaction to this momentous occasion, the first ever true airplane Well, uh, not what you might think. For the most part, people didn't believe it. Even though five people beside the Wrights witnessed the events, uh, there's no dispute historically that the event happened, as it's been described. At the time, it was not deemed credible by the press or the scientific establishment. There had been so many failed aircraft experiments that... The scientific community and the press were pretty jaded about it at the time. And so when the Wrights telegraphed uh, telegrammed their father to inform the press, uh, he tried to do so, but the press wasn't interested. Even the local Dayton Journal refused to publish the story. Now, the Wrights weren't much bothered by this at first. And in fact, uh, on the advice of their patent attorney, they discouraged much interest in their further experiments in 1904 and 1905. By then, they'd set up an airfield closer to home at a cow pasture known as Huffman Prairie, about eight miles northeast of Dayton. Despite the fact that the Wrights flew their ever-improving airplanes on a number of occasions, and numerous people witnessed them doing it, the local press incredibly still failed to pick up on the story. As for national publications... Scientific American was typical in its refusal to publish a story submitted by an enthusiast who had witnessed the flights at Huffman Prairie. Again, their skepticism was understandable. The Smithsonian's well-funded effort to build a flying machine at great expense had been a spectacular failure. Despite the efforts of some of the country's best-known scientists, backed by the U.S. government, Their aerodrome immediately crashed into the Potomac River within seconds of taking off in October 7th of 1903, 
which was two days before that New York Times article I talked about at the beginning. What's more, most leading scientists at the time also thought it was impossible. No less a person than Lord Kelvin, a famous scientist who invented the Kelvin temperature scale, the second law of thermodynamics, that heat will not flow from a colder to a hotter body, proclaimed in 1896 that no heavier-than-air machine could fly. When he was invited to join an aeronautical society, he uh, predicted that the society would spend the next 30 to 40 years attempting to build a flying machine, but would then realize it was impossible and close down. So it was that when the Wrights started to try to sell their airplane, they were met with extreme skepticism. The European press was particularly scornful, disbelieving that these American bicycle mechanics could have achieved what the aristocrats and European aero clubs had not. That all changed in 1908, when the Wrights finally obtained contracts with the U.S. Army and a French syndicate that required them to make successful demonstrations of their airplanes. Wilbur sailed to Europe for the European demonstrations. Orville would fly out to Washington, D.C. Wilbur began his public demonstrations near Le Mans, France, on August 8, 1908. For the first time, large numbers of people, too many this time to be ignored, witnessed the flights. By then, the Wrights had much improved their airplanes. Wilbur demonstrated his ability to make banking turns, fly in circles, do figure eights, and longer and longer flights. None who witnessed his demonstrations could doubt that the era of manned, controlled flight had arrived. How did the world greet the news this time? Well, once they got over their disbelief, the world react with stunned, spectator-sport-like jubilation, uh, the kind that it's hard to imagine. It's hard to conceive of any recent scientific development that was greeted with the same enthusiasm as this one. It became worldwide news. After the initial stunned crowds reported that they'd actually witnessed a human being flying a heavier-than-air machine after the skeptics went there to see it for themselves and had to admit that they'd been wrong. It triggered one of the great public spectacles uh, in history. Over the ensuing months, Wilbur flew dozens of times in front of thronging crowds that traveled from all over the European continent to see the impossible made real. The kings of Great Britain, Spain, and Italy came to watch Wilbur fly, as did countless aristocrats, celebrities, intellectuals. The new flyer had been designed to carry a passenger, and a procession of the most famous and powerful people in Europe strapped in to take flight with Wilbur. The Wright brothers instantly became a global household name. Indeed, according to contemporaneous accounts, they were literally the most famous people in the world at the time. Orville duplicated his brother's success, demonstrating a nearly identical plan for the U.S. Army in Virginia, starting September 3, 1908. Unfortunately, he had a terrible crash September 17th, which injured him badly and killed an Army lieutenant riding along as a passenger, which that lieutenant had the dubious honor of being the first ever airplane crash fatality. Despite that, Orville eventually recovered. 
and the brothers only grew more famous as more and more people learned of their achievements. In October of 1909, Wilbur flew at New York City's Hudson Fulton Celebration. He flew around the Statue of Liberty in a 33-minute flight in clear view of one million New Yorkers. If you could pinpoint a single moment when the modern era began, it might be that moment. Picture a child in that crowd, born into a world where he knew, knew, as firmly as anything, that human beings could never fly. That was impossible. And then he witnessed the impossible. Sitting there in that crowd, he watched a man fly around the Statue of Liberty, a machine built by human innovation soaring into the air under mortal man's control. After that, he'd probably start wondering what else was possible that he'd been told was impossible. After that, he wouldn't pay as much attention to the people who say what can't be done. That child's generation and the one after would go on to make the modern world. Now soon, a lot of people wanted to get into the airplane business. Competing airplane manufacturers sprang up, and the rights got bogged down in patent lawsuits. Well, that was unfortunate for them. The ex- uh, explosion of experimentation in aircraft design that their success triggered was good for the world, as everybody rushed to improve it, uh, aircraft improved with stunning rapidity. Really, all they needed was a demonstration that it was possible, and then lots more people got into the game and started adding their own innovations. And so it was that the first transatlantic flight across the narrowest gap between Nova Scotia and Britain was completed in 1909, just 11 years after Wilbur's demonstrations. By the 1920s, manufacturers were making airplanes large enough to facilitate the first commercial airlines. In 1927, Charles Lindbergh made his famous solo flight from New York to Paris. Now let's imagine again that child watching Wilbur Wright fly around the Statue of Liberty in 1909. Zoom in on the eyes, a child's eyes wide with wonder. Flash forward 60 years to 1969. Picture those same eyes, now surrounded with wrinkles, but with the same expression of childish wonder as he watches another impossible sight, Neil Armstrong walking on the surface of the moon. That world, the world where the impossible happens, That's the world that Wright Brothers built.